pediatric speech-language pathologist, and thanks for joining me for Teach Me to Talk, the podcast. Today, we're continuing our summer podcast series dealing with speech intelligibility in toddlers, and this show is so important because I'm going to be teaching you seven principles for designing sessions for toddlers. Now, if you are getting continuing education credit for this course, that's the official name, Principles for Designing Sessions with Toddlers. If you're a parent, these are just tips that will make your time working on your speech therapy things or even even other kinds of goals because all of these principles are so relevant anytime that we're trying to design effective successful and let me go ahead and say fun therapy sessions for toddlers so let's keep this going uh, and get this going let's get this going this morning now let me say one more thing all of this information is from chapter four of my book, Functional Phonology, a language-based approach for treating speech intelligibility problems in very young children. But again, just because this chapter or these principles are included in this book doesn't mean that it's uh, it's just tailored toward articulation and toddlers. And this, we are talking about that in this series, but I, I just want you to know you can pull the information from this book and it may be worth it for you to get the book even if you're not really always focusing on speech intelligibility. Because again, so many of these principles are relevant throughout our practices in early intervention, no matter what specific niche you're in. So whether you're a speech pathologist or an OT or a developmental interventionist, which is a teacher, or um, any other, even psychologist, uh, try to use these principles in sessions. So I wanted to uh, make that abundantly clear from the beginning. All right, so... Here's what I say in the book, and this is what I want to start out with this. Let's just face it. Anytime that we are trying to get a toddler to do something that we want him to do instead of what he wants to do, there's a big possibility that something is going to go wrong. Or really, sometimes everything goes wrong, (laughs) as in bomb, because it is so hard to change behavior in little people who don't always even realize that they have things under their control, that they can really change how they say a sound, how they produce a word, or if you are in a different discipline, how they uh, use their little fine motor skills. Sometimes they don't even really realize, especially with speech pathologists, that they have a mouth or that they have a tongue and they can move it. So again, it's so, so hard. So we, because this is such a challenge for them, we have to do everything we can to make working on whatever goal we're working on as easy as possible. And again, don't let that freak you out if you're a parent. You think, well, why are you working on something easy if I'm spending all this time and money on therapy? <laughs> we'll get to the easy part, but here, here's why. When, when kids are... When we try to take them well above where they are, it gets too hard, and what do they do? They just leave. They're like the rest of us. Who likes to do something that's that's so much of a challenge that you just feel like a failure, that you don't feel like you're getting any kind of positive feedback, whether it be external with mom and dad cheering for you or your therapist clapping and saying, yay, good job, or whether it's internal, whether you just feel like, I am out of here. This is too much for me. I am overstimulated. I am overwhelmed. This is 
again, unrealistic for me. It's, be, it's too hard. I don't want to try. So that's why we have to really, really keep these principles in mind when we are working with very young children because it will get things started in the right direction and hopefully make it much easier not only for the child but for you <laughs> because you're not going to be dealing with all the things that erupt when we don't meet children where they are and we were, when we are working on things that are well above where they are developmentally. So if we keep these principles in mind, we are much more likely to have success. So number one, and let me say I've, done, I've used all of these with kind of a little catchphrase with keep it. So number one is keep it fun. Now fun and playfulness is the very first strategy. It is just the cornerstone of everything I try to teach parents. But here's the kicker. Sometimes people think they're fun when they are so not fun. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? If you're a therapist, you might have found this in your own practice. Or if you're a parent, you know, maybe your spouse. Or maybe it's even you. You just realize, gosh, I just, I, I'm, I'm just not where I need to be. And that just takes so much maturity and so much insight to be able to look at yourself and really objectively analyze how fun am I being with this this child how playful am I being a lot of times uh, it helps to really really video yourself and then just kind of uh, you know get take your 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 uh, rosy glasses off and look really 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 purposefully and intentionally at yourself and say am I doing the best job that I can to be plugged in to be totally fun to be totally engaged with this child if you're not that often leads to lots of behavior problems that I alluded to before. So when children are avoiding, when they are escaping, when they, when you see lots of things, aggression, when you see any kind of little behavior problem that you don't instinctively know how to fix. Like, for example, if you know that a child is throwing a remote control, what do you do? You take the remote control away. But sometimes when they're whining or when they're irritable or when they're constantly trying to get away, you don't know what to do. The very first thing that I do in this kind of situation is look at myself and think, am I fun enough? Am I playful enough? Am I checked in enough? Am I engaged enough right here in this moment? Am I thinking about something else? Am I wanting to check my phone? Do I want to see, you know, what's that? Did that email come in? You know, what if I'm, if I'm super focused on what I have to do the rest of the day, instead of being really, really involved and totally captivated by that child and what we were doing in that moment, you really set up a situation where a child wants to wander and wants to get away because you yourself are not as connected as you need to be. And so anytime that things are going poorly in a therapy session, and let's face it for all of us, they do. I mean, we're not all perfect. We're not robots. But at the same time, when things are going wrong, I always start with myself and think, what can I change about me? Because it is so much easier for me to change me and my attitude and my level of interaction with the child and or my uh, affect and pump it up a little bit, ratchet it up a notch, as I like to say. That's always easier than trying to change a child or trying to do something uh, internally with that child to get him in a better mood or to get him to want to stay with me or to get her to settle down. It's always better to start with myself. And you will not believe how often that strategy works. And I have parents tell me this all the time. They'll say, I was working with him at home or trying to, and things 
things were going terrible. He didn't want to stay with me. He was tr constantly trying to run away. And you were right, Laura. I just started focusing on me and trying to look happy and sound happy and try to do everything I could to pour into what we were doing there together instead of trying to manage this or manage that. Just really, really focus on making myself have a good time and doing everything I could to impart that pleasantness to that child too. So that's the number one principle is keep it fun. And again, sometimes it helps to watch somebody else and not to toot my own horn here, but <laughs> I have a whole series of DVDs so that you can watch some videos. And there's even an online video with therapy sessions with other children now that we've just released on YouTube called Creating Verbal Routines. And the last half of that hour-long video uh, consists of therapy clips with me with a child and a family. And we're, we're working through our therapy goals. And that whole video is about verbal routines which is a really specific expressive language strategy but if you just want to watch for interaction and for fun and to see how it should look that's a really really um, good template or a good resource for you to use you know like oh that that's that's what I'm aiming for here. That's how fun I need to sound. That's that's how exciting this session needs to be. And let me just give you another kind of more functional way. And I already mentioned it, but I, I say this a lot, and I think it rings so true because I've had therapists tell me what a poignant example it was for them. If you have more children on your caseload, let's say you're seeing 20, 25, I don't know if you work in the school system, you may have you know, an outrageously high number of kids on your caseload, but if the majority of those children are having outburst after outburst, and if they are crying when they, when they see you or when they come to see you or when you enter their homes or wherever you do therapy, if you have more kids crying at the beginning than at the end, if you have more kids upset than you're there, then more kids that are upset that you are leaving, you probably need to really keep this principle in mind because it is so, so important. And the same thing with parents. If you're trying to work with your child on whatever goal you're working on at home, whatever area you're addressing and he is really markedly different toward you during those times than at other times when you're not really working on a therapy goal then you've got to change your approach and again by being more fun and more playful you can usually get things headed in a more positive direction so that's number one all right number two is keep it real so what do i mean by keep it real we want to use as many real objects and real toys and real events during therapy as possible and if you're not sure what i'm talking about here this would be over relying on something like an app or uh, flashcards and let me just say it is so so easy to want to do those sort of things in therapy especially in speech therapy and especially if we're working on intelligibility it is easy to want to get an app and just you select you know initial bilabials or if you're looking at a little flashcard set you're gonna pick out whatever your goal is you know final consonants you're going to select a bunch of pictures and then you're just going up going to want to flip those flashcards with a child because that's what we did in grad school you know if you are like me and over 50 or over 40 that's how we did a lot of therapy we over relied on those kinds of tools like flashcards and and more recently on apps and frankly guys that's just developmentally inappropriate for most toddlers and you may say something like well laura this kid loves an app this kid loves the ipad but here's the truth the kids who like those kinds of 
uh, screens the most need them the least. And we'll continue to talk about this throughout the show. It's kind of one of my themes that I sort of weave into everything. But technology is wonderful for because it does make therapy a little bit more efficient. But at the same time, you've got to be so judicious in your choices when you're choosing materials and, and what you're going to do in therapy with children because we want to be sure that you keep that interaction going and that you always keep you as the primary focus. And so sometimes kids get so involved in the screen and in uh, playing the game that they just totally leave you out. So if you are trying to, uh, let's say your goal is articulation or speech intelligibility, and if you are trying to modify how a child produces the sound, let's say your target is an M, either initial consonant or a final M, and you were saying, look at me, look at me, close your lips, mm, mm, mm. and you're trying to do everything to get the child to look right here, and what does he do? He is looking at his screen. He just wants to be here instead of here with you so that he can see your face and see uh, what you're asking him to do to modify how he produces that sound. And it's, this isn't just isolated to articulation or speech intelligibility. It could be a language game, uh, any, any kind of goal where you are working, where you really need the child's focus on you. And frankly, that it would be any kind of therapy because after all, that's why we're there. Uh, so you want to be sure that you are using real objects and real materials and real events and you know if you're seeing children at home you want to do everything you can to meld your activities and join your activities with what the child will already do and so or what the family is already doing and that's why natural environments is a really really important part of early intervention you want to do things that a family can continue to do so real activities real life things you know I'm a toy person and so to me it's just kind of foreign to want to use an iPad or want to use a video in therapy and that's not to say that I've never done it because I have and I certainly have done it when that's kind of all I've got as my as my start or my in with the child but at the same time we want them to be able to generalize those words and using a lot of apps and flashcards and those kinds of worksheets those kinds of things with toddlers just don't work because children don't always take um, the word that they're using in this very limited context and then know how to carry that over and know how to generalize that and again We'll talk about that a little bit more in a minute But that's our point here is that we want to keep it real. We want to use as many Activities as we can that do not involve a screen that do not involve pictures real-life 3d materials materials do matter So keep that in mind and that's principle number two and keep it real Okay, principle number three here is keep it realistic. And what does that mean? That means any time that we are working with a child on something new, we never start working at a level that's too high developmentally. And I already said in the opening when we were talking about being fun, is that it's so, so important to meet a child where he is. And so let's take an example with speech intelligibility here. Let's say that we are working on something like helping a child change his vowel from syllable to syllable. And then that's our goal. We say, oh my goodness, he can never say Elmo. He says, uh, and uh, you know, he keeps that, that vowel the same. And you say, I've got to get him to do, or let's say he just says, uh, for Elmo. 
And so you, you're thinking, I got to get another vowel in there, but you missed the point because this child may not even have two syllables. So you see what I'm saying with that example? Let me give you a better example. This is the one that I use with parents all the time. Let's pretend that you're working with a high schooler, a young high schooler on algebra. And you are starting with your long equations. And I'm so not a math person. I can't even really give you an example other than, you know, X plus Y equals whatever. Let's say then you realize that you were trying to teach him that whole little algebraic equation that you realize he doesn't know how to multiply and divide. So before you can teach him how to, all those other things that you need to, they're really components of algebra, he's got to know how to multiply and divide. So you have to kind of back up and work on that. And then you realize when you're working on that, he doesn't, he's not even great with addition and subtraction. So you've got to back up and work on that. And then if you're talking about a younger kid that say you were looking at this with an elementary age kid and you think, he doesn't even really have a good idea of uh, a quantity, what numbers represent. So how in the world are we going to get from a kid who, does, who can't count by rote or who can't identify numbers all the way up to algebra? There are lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of steps that come in between. And that's what happens a lot of times when we have children in early intervention. We start with an end goal like talking intelligibly. So 100% intelligibility, we want them to say cat with the you know correct and the correct vowel in the middle and the correct at the end. We want them to say that, but we don't realize, gosh, you know, he, he doesn't even really understand what a cat is. He can't even really consistently use the same little uh, set of sounds to represent that word. So that's an expressive language problem. And then we think, oh my goodness, he doesn't even really look when I say, where's the cat? He doesn't even have a good hold on this receptively. And then we might say, he doesn't look when I point at anything. He doesn't really understand joint attention, which is a social skill. So do you see my point here? We've got to keep our goals realistic because when we start working at a level that is well above what a child can realistically do, we just doom ourselves. So be sure that you are starting just at the right point where uh, children can really, really, really be super successful, which means that you do want to keep it just one little baby step above what they can do. Now, if you're a therapist, that means use your assessment tools. Use what you know about the hierarchy of communication development. And if you're looking at speech intelligibility, you can certainly apply those principles here with you're going to start with what's easier, which I don't want to get ahead of myself. That's one of our next kind of keep it easy. We'll get there. But you really, really want to be sure that you are looking at and being really, really logical and really sequential when you're choosing your goals and not starting at something that's eight steps above where you want to be. You want to be at that next little step at your next little goal. All right, so that was number three, keep it realistic. Let's move on to the fourth principle, which is keep it meaningful. So what do I mean by meaningful? <laughs> I always think about I want to tackle what a kid wants to do and what he needs to do. So needs and wants. So again, this could apply to vocabulary selection, <clears throat> excuse me, in that we are going to always want to look at how often does a child need to use this word? Is this meaningful in his everyday life? Does he need to say the word scissors <laughs> if he's two? Probably not. Probably not yet if he's minimally verbal. And so we always want to think about those things. How meaningful is this word for this child? 
certainly with articulation and intelligibility, we run into this all the time as therapists, especially when we work with late talkers. They often have limited vocabularies, but we somehow jump the gun and think we have to work on intelligibility, and then we start selecting words that a child really doesn't understand what they mean. So receptively, there's a problem, and so we're, we're frustrated because he won't use the correct uh, ending or the, the correct... Uh, you know, if we're looking at a final consonant or a beginning consonant or correct vowel, whatever, we've forgotten that he needs to use the word first. And so we're, we're not selecting meaningful words. And so it doesn't matter that he can't get the final consonant sound on there or the initial consonant sound because the word is something that he would never, ever say. And that's not to say that we're not teaching new words all the time because we certainly are. That's the whole point of therapy. But at the same time, it's got to be relevant and meaningful. So look at those kinds of things when you are thinking about uh, setting your goals for toddlers. Is this goal really meaningful? Do I need to teach a child? To, let's take an example from PT. And this, I'm not a physical therapist, so if you are a PT, you may kind of laugh at this goal, but I think, or laugh at this example, but I think it'll make sense to a lot of us. Why would you spend a lot of time working on climbing stairs if there aren't stairs in a child's home and he doesn't go a lot of places with stairs? And I get that he needs to know how to climb stairs so he can be out in the community and all that. I get all that. But at the same time, if you're working with a new walker on stairs and he has so many limited opportunities to practice, is he going to master that? Quickly, No, because there's not enough exposure there. Again, not enough opportunities for mastery. So same thing with the word. We want to be careful about that. Even when we're selecting vocabulary that we think that we're, we're really working on in our tick goal, if the word is not meaningful from an expressive language perspective, we don't need to use that uh, as one of our um, target words in therapy there. All right, so that was, the me that was the needs piece. What does a kid need to do? The second piece is so important. It's the want to piece here. So what does a kid want to do? What does a kid want to work for? What does he like? So this is, when we talk about this, we think about a child's motivators. So what motivates a child? What will he work for? What will he stay with you for? What's exciting enough to hold his attention? And you know, and you can think about that as an adult for you. What would you work for? Well, most of, we all work for money, right? <laughs> so that we can pay our bills, so that we can even get to do the want to piece, so we can take vacations, so we can buy a fancy purse or jewelry or uh, what a car, a new car, whatever. You know, that, that would be our motivator for working, right? And that would be the want to piece. The needs to piece would be something like, you know, we have to pay the electricity bill or the water bill, whatever. But you get my drift here. We work because we are motivated, because we know that we need that, and there are things that we want that we're not going to be able to get any other way. So we have to think about that with children. What is something that this child likes enough to want to try something that, again, has been so hard for him? Otherwise, he would have already gotten it on his own, right? And we know that the majority of children don't need speech therapy to learn how to talk whether it's language, you know, building new vocabulary, learning to follow directions, all the receptive things, or even our expressive goals with using words, period, much less the articulation piece with the intelligibility piece there. Most kids don't need this kind of direct uh, 
focus to teach them how to talk. They just learn it and they pick it up naturally. So anytime we have a child on our caseload, we know this is extremely difficult for him or he would have already managed to do it on his own without all of this extra assistance. So we have to think about motivators. We have to think about What's going to be worth it for him? Why would he want to stay with me? Why would he want to stay with me right here in this section of this room? Even if I have fantastic materials and things, what, if he doesn't like it, why, why would he want to stay? Why would he want to spend his time doing this? And that's, again, what we talked about before. We see lots of these behavior problems because we're not using the right materials. And so we have to think about what a child's motivators are. Now, parents usually know what their children love. So if you are a therapist, ask. <laughs> ask a parent, what does he like? What are some things that I can do that we can start with here so that he's going to want to stay with me and want to participate a little bit better? Now, sometimes we're in situations or work environments where we don't have direct contact with parents all the time. And so when it's not possible to have that nice feedback from a parent, we're able to ask a question and then get an immediate answer. Let me give you some examples of things that work for most toddlers. Things like bite-sized snacks are great motivators. And I really love it when we can use the snack as the, the whole focus. So it's not that I'm giving him, <clears throat> excuse me, a cookie every time he says something else, it's ideal when you can make your snack match your goals. So again, we're talking about intelligibility. So if we were working on, um, let's say vowels, getting the correct vowels in, in place. And so I wanted to, let's, and let's say that he's a kid that kept the same vowel from syllable to syllable. So we kind of got two goals going here. So let's say that we're gonna use the sign, or not the sign, but the word candy. We want him to say candy and get the E on the end. So see, naturally, that lends itself for you to use that bite-sized snack, that candy, that M&M, something that he can say candy and then he can get it. So you can use all kinds of food that way. And let me just say, some therapists get so weird about not wanting to use food with toddlers. And I think that is just a big nothing kind of argument because there's nothing more functional than having a child learn to ask for something to eat. And most of the time with nonverbal children, when you are sitting down talking to your mother, one of the things that she nearly always says in those first few sentences is, I wish he could just tell me when he's hungry. I wish he could just tell me that he wants something to eat. I wish he could just go in the kitchen and when he's crying, he could name what it is that he wants. And so there is not, I, I can't even really think of a more functional goal than teaching a that, those kinds of words. And even if we're looking at intelligibility, then helping those words clean up more quickly than other kinds of words because eating is something that we all do all day, every day. And so eating is very motivating for toddlers, especially when we do kind of treat foods that they don't get all the time. And sometimes I'll say that to a parent. I'll say, you know, he really works so well for me for goldfish. So, hey, you know, if I see you on Tuesdays, try not to give him any goldfish on Monday or Tuesday so that when I see you, this is motivating. He, he likes it. He wants it. So that's just kind of another example of how we can tweak uh, our uh, provision of these kinds of motivators and make it more functional. Another great 
motivator for lots of toddlers or any kind of movement games or activities that you can quickly do over and over and over. And again, this might be throwing them up. It might be having them rock back and forth on your lap. It might be a game of chase or it might be tickles, any kind of little movement game. And again, remember you are pairing your goal with what activity you're using. So you do want it to make sense. Now sometimes I can see, and especially our colleagues who are in ABA, would say to us with you know the principles of applied behavioral analysis, it doesn't really matter. You can have your your reward not be tied to whatever the activity is or whatever the goal is that you're that you're having a kid say or having a kid do but as a speech pathologist who focuses on communication and as as a therapist who works just with itty bitty kids you know one to about four or five I think it makes a lot more sense to try to match it like we talked about with the food example. So even with the movement game, if we were working on, say, bilabial sounds and I was trying to get a word like, you know, up or push or pull, movement activities would be great for that kind of thing because I, I have those words, my target words and my goals are built into that activity. So think about that. So our motivators here, we've had bite-sized snacks and then we've had movement games that we can do over and over and over pretty quickly. The next thing also has to do with how efficient you are or how fast or quick you are. It would be a cool toy that offers short turns. So again, something that you can have a child do over and over and over in a short amount of time. You know, he gets, to, he says the target word and then he gets to have a turn with a toy. He says the target word and then he gets to have a turn with a toy. And sometimes parents will get a little bit off and even therapists with what we try to use. You know, we'll try to use a toy because we know that a child really, really, really likes it. And then we're, we're kind of stuck there because he likes it too much and the turn takes too long and then we're not able to really um, get that going pretty quickly. So make sure that when you're using those kinds of things that you think about how long does this turn take? Am I really going to maximize the amount of productions that I get here or the attempts of productions that I get here? Uh, so don't shoot yourself in the foot on that and have have your toy be a distraction to what your overall goal is with that game. And I really like to think about any any kind of thing, even back with snacks. I would never give a child a whole cookie because that takes way too long to eat. You want to break that off. And so that's why I was saying bite-sized bite snacks. Same thing with the toy. You want a toy that has lots of quick turns. So or even a toy with lots of pieces. So let's say that you were working on, uh, let's just use a language example here instead of an intelligibility example. Let's say that you're working on building vocabulary. A wooden puzzle would be a great activity there because you may have six or nine different target words there. And so he always wants the next piece to play. He wants to finish his puzzle. So he's going to want to continue to request or continue to say, the target word so he can fill in the next piece of the puzzle. Other things like Legos, if you were building, or like let's say a ball toy that you could repeatedly get him to say ball if that's your target, you know, your target word because it's vocabulary or even because it's uh, an articulation goal. Let's say you're working on initial B or initial bilabials. You know, have him say ball, you know, 15 times in one toy with, you know, within a couple of minutes. That's fantastic. So that's what you want to go for. You really, really, again, want to think about keeping those turns pretty fast. 
so that you can uh, get lots and lots and be really efficient, get lots of those productions. Another thing that we think about with keep it meaningful, and this is so important with articulation therapy, is uh, making sure that the words make sense. And so this example is probably more relevant for therapists than for parents. But lots of times, therapists, if we think back to that traditional articulation approach by Dr. Van Riper, which we all learned in grad school, and our daughter's finishing or beginning her second year of grad school. So, you know, it's so funny to look at her, some of her textbooks and hear her talk about some of the same things, you know, that I learned back in the 80s and 90s. But just that traditional articulation therapy where we work on a sound in isolation and then we move it to syllables. Okay, what is the problem with that? Sometimes those syllables are not meaningful. Let's take an example. Let's say that we're working on k. It's a pharyngeal consonant. As a parent, you think about this as a K sound or a C sound makes the same uh, sound in words. And so let's say that we were using this approach and so we might have a child practice, you know, um, K, Ki, Kai, Ko, Ku, if we were pairing it with long vowels, or even if we did it with short vowels. With that example that I just gave you there, how many of those words make sense? K, well, only if you know somebody named K. Ki, that's perfect. That's a great one. But what about the other ones that we did? Ko and Ku, not really very functional. So for me, this fourth principle and keeping it meaningful is I want to use real words. I don't use a lot. I don't use nonsense words with children, with toddlers that we, I'm working with in speech therapy because I want them, anything that they say, I want it to potentially be used communicatively. And so some therapists will disagree with that. But for me, this philosophy with keeping it meaningful does seem to be... Um, more productive because then anytime you get a kid to say a word you can immediately attach it as a label and then he can ask for it he can uh, learn the receptive label again answer with that word and i'm always trying to think about that too and so if you are switching from say geriatrics to early intervention keep that in mind you always want to make sure that your words are meaningful so you probably don't want to do a lot of nonsense syllables uh, if you're working on articulation with children and certainly if you're switching from a school uh, population where you've worked with school-aged children you might have still used that traditional approach a lot and with toddlers it just, uh, to me, doesn't make a lot of sense to teach them anything that's not meaningful that they can't really use communicatively uh, from the beginning. Another thing that's related in Keep It meaning Meaningful that's related back to what we were talking about back in Keep It Real is when I was talking about overusing screens or things like pictures with toddlers. And here's why this this that example also applies here in Keep keep it meaningful it's because in this tech obsessed age that we live in so many toddlers really are already kind of glued to a screen and I hate to see that when that's happening and let me just say I'm not anti-technology I mean my goodness I have a website <laughs> and YouTube channel so I know that these are wonderful tools that we can use for children and for adults for learning but when a kid is just so hyper focused on that he doesn't always translate what you think he's even learning with the screen to real life and I've talked about this example before but I, I, I want to share it again even if you've heard it because I worked with this little girl several several years ago and she's actually on my uh, course on DVD is it autism 
and she was so interesting. She was uh, had has autism, has ASD, super high functioning. And when she was two, two and a half, when uh, even before I started working with her, she had hundreds of words, a couple hundred of words, even when her mom tried initially to get her involved in our state early intervention program. And when they when she called the office to get make an appointment or what she thought was making an appointment and they did a phone screening with her and she said they asked her how many words that her little girl used and she said oh gosh 200 250 she said the therapist practically laughed her off the phone and said we would never qualify her for therapy she has way too big of a vocabulary there is not a problem mom you know Thanks, but no thanks. She's not going to qualify. But the problem with this little girl was she could label so many things in her little books and like on her little leapfrog toys, all those. She loved those kinds of toys. I don't think her, and this was many years ago. I don't think her family was, I did a lot with an iPad or anything like we do with kids now. But the problem was even if she could, and this is what the direct quote from the mom was, even if she can say banana when she sees it on her toy, she cannot walk into that kitchen and ask me for a banana. Even if she wants it, even if I know that's what she wants, she has not connected that that picture of that yellow uh, curve there is the same thing as the banana when she walks in, in the kitchen. She has not connected those concepts. And I thought that was just so brilliant and so perceptive of that mom to get that she was not really able to generalize language or carry over language and so that's what I mean by keep it meaningful here even if a child learns a word in one context especially if he learns it in a context that's symbolic like a picture or uh, on it in, in or on a screen there's a risk that he won't be able to use that same label with a real object so you're always better starting out with those things and that's what I mean by keep it meaningful and so many of these principles as we're talking about are connected you know keeping it meaningful and keeping it real those things really go together so that that's another point that I wanted uh, wanted to make right here when we're talking about this is make sure that children understand the target words that you're using from a language perspective so that they can use those words communicatively and if it's vocabulary that they don't use very often really really think about that now let me say one more caution about that <laughs> kids will have to learn all kinds of words all the time with things that aren't just immediately available in their homes or just that you know they're just everyday objects they do need to learn things and and i'm really really talking about children with limited expressive vocabularies right now you wouldn't teach words like elephant or um magnifying glass <laughs> to a child who barely you know just had a handful of words but you would think about teaching a word like dog or fish even if a child doesn't see that all the time because those are words that do occur in the vocabularies of most typically developing toddlers who are two and three even if they don't have a dog they will see a dog on TV or in a book or as they walk <clears throat> excuse me, outside their homes. And so think about that too and kind of use your common sense with that, with looking at what is meaningful there, uh, even vocabulary-wise. All right, let's keep going. And the next one appropriately is keep it moving. <laughs> so we're going to move this along too. This is our fifth principle, keep it moving. When I 
talk about therapy with toddlers, especially when I'm talking to parents of busy toddlers, and especially when I'm, well, any kind of therapist, any kind of course that I would teach, I always like to talk about how we keep kids engaged and one of the best things that we can do is keep it moving and by that I mean that I use a move sit move sit move sit philosophy to structure and organize sessions and what does that mean that means that we are moving we are up doing something getting our little bodies engaged getting our systems regulated you know movements very regulating and think about it just from an adult perspective perspective after you exercise you feel tired, but you also feel what? You feel calm. You feel peaceful. Your body is worn out. And so you might think about it negatively, but think about it in the sense of how likely am I going to be able to get up and try to get out of here or move around a lot or whatever. You're not. You are much more settled at that point. So not as intensely as an adult would exercise, but we can certainly think about that with children with using it with movement. It really helps them settle down. And so if we think about structuring our sessions with children in that we're gonna move around, move around, move around, and then we're gonna come back and sit down and play with this sit down toy together or read this book or play this game or pretend like we're cooking, you know, whatever we're doing, that will always go better, especially for a toddler who is always on the go, a child who's always trying to get away, always trying to, you know, just constant motion. It's so much better for those kids if we plan for that. And so we think, I'm going to let him move. Make it a part of therapy, though. Don't just say, I'm going to give him a movement break and then let him move around and you sit and do your notes or talk to mom or whatever. Don't do that. Make it a part of the therapy. So that say you're up doing a social game where you're working on connecting with each other and joint attention and you know whatever else you want to think about is your focus for the social game. And then you come back together and do a sit-down activity. And then after a few minutes, and remember the guideline for toddler attention is three to six minutes. So after about five minutes, with a kid who's really, really busy, you may want to get up and do some kind of really focused movement activity again with you where you're making it part of your therapy uh, part of your therapy where you're actually addressing goals during that time get up and move again get all that going give him that opportunity to do that and then come back and do another sit down activity now if you've let's just say this works really really well and so if you are fighting a child's natural tendency to move and again most of the time this isn't behavior I mean sometimes it is he just doesn't like what he's doing it's too hard but sometimes it really is uh, him wanting to pursue movement from a sensory perspective meaning that he knows that his little body feels weird and he it feels like he's um, anxious and it feels like he's irritated and uh, you know all that and so he needs to move around to help him regulate and help pull it back together and help him uh, again be able to pay attention so the moving sitting moving sitting moving sitting works so so well and I, I really do think it's the most effective way to improve a toddler's attention in therapy. And again, it's harder to do therapy this way. <laughs> if you're a therapist who's used to really sitting at a table or having beautifully compliant children who always sit and who always will just play the little board game with you, you know, you are so lucky because the rest of us... <laughs> 
don't see kids like that at all. We have to keep it moving. We have to keep it going. And this is a great strategy to teach parents. And it's, it's, it's so good for therapists, too, to learn this. And, again, it's harder to do, especially if you've not done it before. It's harder to do when you're older. Boy, at 53, it's a lot harder for me to do that than when I was 43 and 33, um, certainly in my 20s. And so there will be a price to pay for you physically. And sometimes parents will say things to me like, you know, I'm too old, I'm too fat or whatever. And I think, you know, me too, but I'm out here doing it and I'm trying to get it done. And that's what I want you to do too. And it is what works really well. And so here's, here's how I do it with parents. If I'm seeing a child in their home, I, a busy kid, I will say to my mom, listen, I want you to get him outside before I get there, and I want you to run him <laughs> in this backyard, and I want y'all to just play, 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 play as hard as you can because that is going to make our session go much more smoothly because he is going to be in a more settled, more regulated place. And when his body is settled, guess what? His little brain is more settled too. And he can calm down and he can process what I'm saying more quickly. And he is not so anxious to get up and get away. If you're in a clinic situation or a school situation, you may have to be a little bit more creative about how you're going to do that. Even having a child do something like jump down the hall with you, or you may not want to let them run or whatever, but even where you're maybe bouncing them and letting them jump, if you have access to a trampoline or seeing a kid at home, tell mom, listen, can he jump on the bed? Can he jump on the bed 10 minutes before I get there? Can you let him do that with you to really, really, really help him settle down? So think about all the creative ways that you can use this move, sit, move, sit, move, sit principle. And anytime a kid is that I'm losing a child's attention, I try not to do the whole, you know, sit down, come here, be quiet, listen to me. I try so hard not to do it. And again, everybody lapses into that and we're, most of us are moms after all. And that's kind of what comes out of all of our mouths naturally. But if you'll think about, there's a reason he's trying to get away from me here. There's a reason that he's trying to move away. Is it too hard, like we've already talked about, or is it that he needs to move? Is it that his little body, he is uncomfortable in his skin right now, and that I've got to do something else to make that better for him? So keep it moving is a big, big principle. Uh, especially for those of us who specialize in early intervention. And if you're a parent of a late talker, or you're especially if you're a parent of a child who has one of those keyed up sensory systems, this is just gonna be one of the best strategies I could ever teach you. Have him move around a lot and work your therapy goals and your what you're working on, work it into that movement piece, but then try the sit down activities after you've given him an opportunity to really, really move. So that was number five, keep it moving. Let's look at number six. It's keep it easy, and then I have a parenthesis in the book, enough. So keep it easy enough. What do I mean by that? Specifically, remember we're talking about um, speech intelligibility this summer, and this is from Functional Phonology. So let's use this example first. Specifically here with keep it easy enough, this recommendation refers to choosing your target words and patterns. And so we've already talked about this when we were saying keep it realistic when we were talking about not working at a level that's too hard for a child, so don't make your goals so hard. And so here's what I mean by keep it easy, is when a child is really, really struggling and when you see lots of negativity and when you see that he is just, or even if it's not negativity, it's just that his progress has plateaued, 
you always need to think this may not be easy enough for him. I need to be at a level where I know he's got a better chance for success and where I know that he's going to be able to make some progress with me. And so if we are looking at specifically speech intelligibility, here are some things that we can do when we're looking at specific sounds for a child. You want to look at any kind of sounds and patterns that a child can already correctly produce in at least one established word. And so let's kind of think about that for example. So let's say a toddler already has a good M when he says mama. So, but he doesn't really, let's say he only has three other words in his vocabulary. Let's say he says mama and uh for up and let's say he says bye for bye, bye-bye, or goodbye. And so let's say those are our words. So because he's already got that M and that B, because those are made right here with, and again, speech pathologists, bilabials, but for you other therapists and parents, I would say, well, that's a great goal here because he can already do that getting his initial bilabial or getting his lips closed here. So I'm going to pick other target words that start with M or start with B because he already has that in a couple of words. So doesn't that make sense? Yeah, and that's what I mean by keep it easy enough. You think, what can he already sort of do? Or what do I see? I just want to see more of it. So that's what we do when we keep it easy enough. So then what we do specifically for articulation is we include those we then, then we get him some more words with those kinds of sounds. And then what do we do? We try to match new sounds with those things that he can already do. And specifically for articulation here, we're also going to think about place. And so I, let's use the same example. So let's say that I'm, say, I'm thinking he can already do that M, and I'm already hearing that B for bye-bye. Let's see if he can do a P, because an M, a P, and a B are all made right here. And so I would think, what are some words that I can introduce to him that are meaningful, that are motivating, that begin with that initial P because he's already got it there. So do you see how keeping it easy enough where we're really, really putting on our therapist hats here and we're really using all that theory that we learned in school, <laughs> in grad school, about how, uh, how to choose target vocabulary words and sometimes as early interventionists we are all we're go we go so functional which is fantastic but we all almost have to pull ourselves back the other way and think about the theory that we learned and think about phonology and think about okay if he's learning if he's learned if he has mama that's a two-syllable word what are some other reduplicated syllables that i can teach him because he already has that pattern so that would be him using that established pattern so you want to think about that. You want to look at a child's existing vocabulary and think, what 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 are some easy targets here? What are some layups? You know, if you live in a basketball crazy state like I do, what are some really easy kind of things that I can think of? Easy kinds of things when when uh, I'm choosing vocabulary, and I'll just tell you how I do it. I'm doing this with one mom now. I'm going to see them this afternoon. They are. I, I wanted this mom just to write down the words that this child has, and he has probably about 20 consistent words, write down those words and then write down how he says those words. And then we're really looking at, uh, even from a, this mom's perspective, she's really getting a phonetic inventory here. So she's really looking at what are the consonants he uses? What are the vowels that he uses? What consonants and vowels in his little 20 words, you know, does he have five words that all have the same beginning consonant sound? That's a fantastic 
starting point because I know that he can do that. How many different vowels can he pair that initial consonant with? And so that's how you increase vocabulary. And again, it may not be with you sitting there in the session as a therapist that you can do this. You may need to take that list like I'm doing with this family and pull it out and and really, and then you know what you might do is compare it to a vocabulary list. If you have any of my books, except Functional Phonology, like uh, the Therapy Manual or Building Verbal Routines and Toddlers, or if you have Let's Talk About Talking, that manual that I've done, that has the best initial vocabulary list in it that I've ever published because I pulled from the MacArthur Bates list, so it's evidence-based practice. But you take something like an initial vocabulary list and a child's phonetic inventory, and then put that together and think, uh, you know, what are my other words here? And then you really are working on speech intelligibility from a language-based perspective. So you're considering that vocabulary building as you're considering speech intelligibility. And that's, that hybrid approach is what I personally think works best when we're targeting speech intelligibility for children who are really young, you know, two, three, four. And we'll talk more about that as the series progresses, but that's sort of a starting point with that. We wanna keep things really, really easy enough when we are working with uh, children. Now let's think about this. We've already sort of given that PT example. Remember the one, the example that I said a, a PT might laugh if they heard it with keeping it functional with we won't teach a new walker to work on stairs if he never needs stairs, if that's not something that's a part of his daily routine. That would be the same kind of principle here too with keeping it easy enough. Why would we work on that yet? Because he's just not there yet. We've got to work on other things first. And as a parent, think about your own uh, profession. Are there things that are harder for you to teach a new employee to do or someone that knew that you're supervising or someone new to your field? Are there things that you think in your field, oh, I got to say that till later. She's not ready for that yet. That's the same thing with this keep it easy enough. So look at your complexity. Anytime a child is not making progress, we always need to think about that and certainly I think that falls in every principle that we've talked about so far hasn't it that if a child isn't making progress or if we see some negativity or if we see some problematic behaviors we always know that we need to back up and so certainly this is this is how you know how to back up you you think what's easier what's this next little thing that I that's just above what he's currently doing or if you think well this goal is too hard what would be right under that and then right under that and then even walk it backwards and it's hard sort of to think about it in without thinking about a specific goal I hope that I've given you enough examples here for that to make sense to you but if you'll just just think about what you're trying to get the kid to do and then think what's that next little step or for sometimes what's that first step and then can you do that well what would be the next step or what would be the next step and so uh, this keep it easy enough is actually the kind of the backward principle if I've started with something if I'm getting nowhere if week after week after week the child is just not making any progress what's the goal that's a step just a step down and then the next step down and then the next step down and sometimes we just find ourselves we th end up thinking well why in the world is I working on that <laughs> you know that's well, we can't even get there from here and so th just as therapists think about that and if a parent if you're thinking gosh I really am not sure what she means by this you know I don't know how to do this 
that's one more reason for your child to be in therapy because that's what a therapist is for is there to say you know you're right this goal is too hard we've got to back this up or he can't do that you're trying to get him to do that but hey what about this this would come earlier so that's another plug for getting your children in therapy now if you are in a situation that you just can't Let's say you live in a country where services are not as accessible as they are in the United States, or let's say that somehow you're just in a temporary situation or you just do not have the resources or there are not services available. Do not beat yourself up about that. That is not what I'm trying to say. But for those parents who can get your children enrolled in therapy, please do, because it's so beneficial, not only for that child, because you've got another set of eyes looking at them, it's beneficial for you too because you're going to learn lots and lots and lots of strategies you never even thought about. You know, that's our job is to help you be more effective. So get your child in therapy. Just one more little plug for that. All right, let's look at this last principle here. And it really sort of piggybacks on what I've already talked about. And it's keep it going. One of the most central foundational pillars that we teach when we are working in early intervention is you've got to work with parents. You've got to work with families. You've got to work with daycare teachers and grandparents or if they're the caregivers or whoever spends a lot of time with the child. We've absolutely got to work with them to keep all of this going. What good is it if a child can clean up his speech intelligibility when he's working with you, if that's your particular focus, or his language, you know, he only says the word with you, what good is it? Now, as therapists, you know, we just kind of feel like, oh, yes, I'm fantastic at what I do. You cannot let your self-esteem be totally wrapped up in how well a child does in front of you. Try to change that so that you are teaching more and more and more people how to do the same things that you do with that child in a session so that they can all get the same kind of results. And again, it is so flattering sometimes, especially for an early interventionist, when a kid will, you know, a mom will say, he only talks for you or he talks better for you than anybody else. And I, I know therapists will say to me after I've said this in a conference and use this, you know, kind of ugly example, they'll come up and say, oh, I felt that way too. So we all kind of have felt that way, but we can't leave it there. And that's why the whole natural environments push got started in the first place is because as speech language pathologists, we are hopefully really good at getting children to do these things for us, but we can't just leave these skills in a therapy session. Even if we're seeing them at home, you know, sometimes a mom will say, his speech therapy session here at home is better than any other hour in the week as far as what he'll say. And I always want to say, that is fantastic. I love that. That is how it's supposed to be. But, Mom, you've got to get just as good as this as I am. And so that's our job as therapists, is to really, really keep that going and to empower parents and to help them. The best way that you can do that is have parents participate in sessions and have them not just watch you. And, and you know, I mean, okay, well, let me just say, there is a lot of value in watching with the parent who's sitting there and really, really watching. But you've got to be sure that they're not checked out. You've got to be sure that they're not on their phone or distracted with other children or whatever. And again, I'm not slamming parents who have to take a call or look at an email or take care of another sibling's needs. But I am saying when they're there watching you, it needs to be active participation. Ideally, a parent will be participating with you in therapy. And so you can say to them, 
okay, here's what we're going to work on. You know, you introduce that strategy, and then you, you explain it to your parent, and then you do it with the child, and the parent watches you do this, use whatever strategy you're using with the child. And then you say to a parent, okay, you try it. And so you have that return demonstration where the parent is showing you how they do it. Now, some parents don't want to participate like that. They're shy. They're embarrassed. They're, again, checked out. And, again, I'm not slamming parents. I'm just telling the truth. <laughs> they want you to fix their child instead of really, really learning what they should be learning. And, again, if you're a parent sitting here watching a YouTube video, that's probably not you <laughs> because you've taken the time to uh, – watch a video like this and to learn more about how to help your child. And so I, I'm not talking to you, but I'm talking about parents who, again, aren't as participatory as we like. And so the very best way to do that is just to engage them from the beginning and just to say, you know, I'm actually here more for you than I am her. If you're talking about a little girl, you're saying, I actually want to teach you this so you can keep this going all day, every day. And you say, it is great that she'll do it for me. And the only reason that I'm getting her to do this for me right now is so that you can see how to do it. This isn't, you know, it is me teaching her how to do it, but it's more important that you know how to teach her how to do it. And so caregiver education and parent education and really teaching moms and dads the strategies and the techniques and the tricks that we use that work and especially when there's something that's so specific to their child if you even with articulation if you say let's say that a mom is worried about let's use that example that we were doing before with you know mama is the only sound that he can say or the only time he can get a good m and she's kind of hyper focused on that let's say that the child's name also begins with an initial M. And so you could just really teach her. You're going to say, here's what I want you to say. Here's how I want you to cue it. Here's how I want you to look <laughs> when you're trying to get him to say the word. The reason that she's doing it for me and not for you is this is how you can change it. And be specific with parents about that. Uh, sometimes therapists, especially younger therapists who maybe aren't moms yet or who haven't had a lot of experience or maybe you're just more, just not as assertive. Sometimes it's hard for therapists to give parents really specific feedback and to say things like, I want you to change how you're doing that or no wonder it's not working. <laughs> Try it this way, you know, with a little humor and with a little uh, with relationship building throughout this process where they are really trusting you and they're getting to know you. And again, try not to be offensive. I'm not saying that you go in and just slam parents and say, you're doing it wrong. No wonder he's not saying it for you. You never want to do that. You never want to do that. But at the same time, you want to give very, very, very specific instructions, not only to children, but to parents with how they can use the same strategies and techniques that you've used. All right, so that, oh, let me say one more thing. As a therapist, when you are giving parents these strategies and techniques, and then you see them like the next week and the next week, and you're saying, hey, how's that going? You know, how's your homework going? And you may not use the word homework. I'm kind of old school that way. I sort of like to call it that because I, then I think parents understand this is something I need to get done. This is something that's necessary. This is an obligation. She expects this of me. But if a parent, if you're coaching. So let's say that your coaching strategies, a parent isn't, you're not really sure how it's going. And you keep saying to a parent, well, tell me about this. How, how did you use that? How did that work out this week? And if they always say good or great and you don't see a lot of evidence of that, 
there's not much homework going on there. <laughs> they are just giving you kind of a rote answer. And so you always know the parents who really are trying to use their strategy, your strategies, because they will come back and say, this didn't go as well, or they are, it might have gone well, but they are able to give you specifics and say, well, she said this, and she said this, and she said this, or she signed this, or I heard that those, she got her vowels right in these words, but she's still struggling in these words, and so you want to hear specifics, so if you just have a parent who's really, you know, fine, it went okay, do a lot of just questioning with that to figure out with a parent, you know, is, is it, what's really going on there? Is the strategy too hard? Is mom not able to do it? Are you expecting too much? Do you need to back up with mom and give her easier homework? And so think about that as that too, to make all of this easier, all of these seven principles easier for you, especially if you're working on speech intelligibility, which is what this whole series is about this summer. Uh, I've included in functional phonology all these principles as we've worked it through these six priority patterns that we're teaching toddlers to improve their speech intelligibility. So things like keep it meaningful, all the vocabulary words that I chose for a particular sound or pattern that we're working on are all meaningful for young children and they are all included in the vocabularies of most typically developing children You know, who are toddlers two and three, one, two, and three, and young preschoolers. And so in things like keep it realistic or keep it real, I've listed the materials there for you. Keep it easy. All of the target patterns have uh, word lists that uh, increase in complexity. So the easiest words start first or in the first little list to teach. And then the second little list, those words are a little bit harder. So all of the things that we talked about, especially for speech intelligibility, uh, I've included those seven principles right here. But again, it does not matter what goal you were working on or even what niche or what field you were in, whether it's OT or PT or speech or developmental intervention, whatever you call yourself working on, if you will remember these principles, those seven principles, Keep it fun, keep it real, keep it realistic, keep it meaningful, keep it moving, keep it easy enough, and keep it going. You will be on the right track. All right, so that's it for today. I'm Laura Mize, pediatric speech-language pathologist, and thanks so much for joining me for Teach Me to Talk, the podcast.